Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. In the culture war, there are no winners, just podcasters. Only a few are willing to risk their lives in the face of some of the dumbest ideas to have ever captured human civilization. Every week, we, Megan Daum and Sarah Hader, humbly accept this mission in order to bring you conversations that are equal parts stunning, brave, and unhinged. Welcome to A Special Place in Hell. And uh, morning, Sarah, and welcome... Diana Fleischman, our guest. Yay. Yay. Yeah. And Diana, then, we're really lucky to have her because she is um, ready to pop. Beyond lucky. Yeah. 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 Merely days Very away. Nice. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to have a cesarean on Monday in four days. Wow. I'm wow. ready to have my body back to myself. Just yeah. ooh, living in here. But your <laughs> yeah. life is not going to be back to yourself. Your life's going to be even worse. Ooh. No, the first two weeks are quite easy. They sleep all the time. It's very mm -hmm. easy the first two weeks. And then Just two weeks. Did you have a cesarean? This is your second child, right? So did you have a yeah, cesarean? Yeah, so the, the last time? time I had a failed induction, oh. I did literally everything I could think of to avoid a cesarean. I had uh -huh. a doula. I went to the hospital in the state that I was at that had the lowest cesarean rate. I had a, a water birth like planned. I went, I had a, I, I did all kinds of uh, practice stuff. Mm -hmm. And then um, I had an induction. The baby never descended, although I did, mm. it was like three mm. days. Mm -hmm. um, long, long story. But then the heart rate of my daughter started to decelerate and they brought me in for a cesarean. And if I had known actually how easy the cesarean recovery would be for me, I wouldn't have fought it tooth and nail so hard. Mm -hmm. um, it was really fine. I hope no doctors are angry listening. I went grocery shopping like four days later. Like I was, I was totally <laughs> fine. And yeah, so um, if you're going to have like, if you're going to have like four to eight children, then you want to try as hard as you can for a, a VBAC, which is a vaginal birth after cesarean, because every subsequent cesarean you have increases your risk of something horrible called placenta accreta which is mm. where your placenta invades your body cavity and tries to kill you. Okay. But um, <laughs> even if I had a third pregnancy, which is somewhat unlikely, there would only be about a 2% chance of that. So this is actually the much safer and more peaceful option for me. Mm. Uh, and it was very unlikely that I was going to be successful in having a, a, a VBAC. Although we, I think I've talked about it with, with Louise Perry and some other people. There's a certain like, status and cachet and having a vaginal birth. There's like, you know, it's like going to battle and I don't know, or, or having surgery without anesthetic or whatever. Oh yeah. Everybody should aspire to yeah. that. This is the, is this the new trad thing? Having any surgery with no anesthesia? This <laughs> well, should be like an extreme <laughs> sport. I, I mean, having a, having a birth, like having a natural unmedicated birth is a certainly like a symbol of, I know of resilience and, and bravery as much as I think, the, probably the highest symbol of resilience and bravery a woman can exhibit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So before you hopped on the call, Sarah, Diane and I were talking about the, uh, the cachet of having three kids or more or the cachet of being at above replacement level as an individual. So like Diana, I'm, do you consider yourself a, a pro natalist? Yes. 
Okay. I very recently have come to that conclusion. Yes. Yeah, because you have, so you're, it's very interesting because you're in this conversation. You and I have this in common. So we, we both like to talk about hypergamy and, and, and things like this. Um, I, I, I'm personally anti-natalist and publicly pro-natalist, if that makes any sense. Um, you just screwed it up there. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, it's, the it, it's, it's not, it, it I totally it's just, am. I totally am. Oh, okay. You yeah, did privately. That's what like, you're not saying like, you're like, I don't mention it. You just mentioned No, I okay. personally, she I, doesn't want to do, do, do it. She wants others to do it. I don't want to do it. And I think it's best for society that I don't do it, but I understand that it's also best for society that most people do it. So I wonder like how did, have you come into this kind of thinking later in your life? Because you, you were not always, uh, you, you weren't exactly like 20 years old and having baby fever. I think I was like in my late twenties, I was on some, um, British series where I said like, eh, human extinction might not be so bad. And like now <laughs> I've come like really 180 degrees, you know, ex- saying that you've had that kind of inconsistency is generally very unpopular, but. I don't know why I really did change my mind. And then I started hanging around with, with effective altruists in the late, uh, you know, in the, in, two, in like 2011, 2012. And they're very anti-human extinction and very pro, you know, long-termism. And, but, but none of them are really having kids. And there was this whole conversation amongst effective altruists, for example, about whether they should bother having kids. Um, Toby Ord, who wrote this book called uh, The Precipice, his wife, Bernadette, wrote a long piece about um, having children and about how it could fit in with, uh, you know, giving 10% of your income away, which is the kinds of thing that they do. They only have one one child, I think. And so I've really been steeped in this conversation about whether to have children and the costs and benefits of it for about uh, over 10 years. Yeah. Mm, wow. Why don't you, why don't the effective altruists have kids given that they feel so strongly about it? Well, you know, you have to, you have to, it's a very complicated sort of trade off. So let's say that you're working on some problem to do with existential risk. Let's mm-hmm. say that you're working on AI mm-hmm. and you, they love to put numbers on things. Let's say you put a number on working on AI and you're like, okay, I think that there's like, I don't know, like a 1% chance that I prevent human extinction. And, mm-hmm. However, let's say that I have two kids. That's high. I mean, one, that's, very, that's really high. God, no, think very highly of yourself. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to use numbers that are like grokkable. But yes, sure. uh, let's say that you said that there was like a 1% chance. And let's say that you, uh, you have two or three kids and you half that, you know, in terms of like encouraging human flourishing, you're kind of screwing things up. And so there's a lot of interesting calculations that happen. And there are a few like pronatalist effective altruists. Um, and I think that they subscribe mostly to a sort of Brian Kaplan. Brian Kaplan wrote a book called Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. Mm-hmm. And he's definitely made dozens, if not hundreds of children with that book, because he said, he said that he, he, one woman went from having four to eight because of his advice, I want to say. Wow. Oh, wow. Like the book actually is a fertility drug. <laughs> wow. Is what you're saying. If well, you read the book, you will produce more. I, I, think, uh, that, I think Louise eggs. Perry is going to write a of, of book like that for women because Brian mm-hmm. Kaplan's book definitely is, it, it's, it's, it, it convinces men, I think, more than women, um, to have more kids. But in any case, uh, most of the effective altruists are, are, are amenable to that idea that like, helicopter parenting, hot housing your kids, all that stuff is, is kind of pointless. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you look at like the trads, you know, I was just listening to, um, 
uh, mother maiden matriarch. And there's this woman called Katie Faust on there. And she's very against IVF and surrogacy and stuff like that. And there's almost a traditionalist view that childhood and children's development is incredibly fragile. Like if you're raised by two moms, then you're missing something essential. If your father is a sperm donor, like your biological father is a sperm donor, then you're ripping something away from a child that's essential for their well-being. If a child is removed from a surrogate and given to a mother, even if she breastfeeds, who didn't carry him or her, then that is in some way a primal wound that's like traumatic. And so it seems to me like some of the people who are most likely to be pronatalists, some of these traditionalists, actually think that childhood development is incredibly fragile, like that there are things that you could do unthinkingly, even potentially, that would screw up your kids forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I no don't kidding. think. And that's that's why it's it's easy for me to have uh, have two um, at least because, you know, and I also was an egg donor many, many times. And I just don't, uh, you know, I know lots of people who are the product of gamete donation. And, uh, you know, the other day I got a very long email from somebody who is um, the product of a of a sperm donor and who feels very badly done by that. Um, mm-hmm. But my not-so-popular opinion is that she just probably has a mother or a father with a personality disorder. It's not actually the gamete donation. It's just genes. <laughs> Wait, so what was her problem? She thought that she had inherited something from the sperm donor? Oh, no. She wasn't ascribing it to genetics at all. She was saying that she had a primal wound from not knowing her, her uh, biological father. Um, just to go down the rabbit hole a little bit more, uh, like I used to have a colleague that had a serious personality disorder and I think she got it from her sperm donor father. And in the seventies, I think in the UK, they were just like, here's some sperm. They didn't really give you a lot of choices about what your gamete donor would look like. Whereas in Denmark, where, where some women go to get sperm now, they give you the most information you could possibly get. Denmark is actually kind of a very eugenics-y country overall. You know, you get to hear a sample of their voice, a full workup oh, of their wow. personality. I think that they have IQ testing. You can see there's some places where like if you choose a, a sperm donor, you would only see pictures of them as children and not as adults because you don't want them to be able to like find them. So stuff like that. Also, they're you know. Danes. They're all super attractive. They're, they're also beautiful. That's right. Of course. So, uh, feet tall. Yeah. So, so that's, I think, part of the, the whole pronatalist package is like, how sensitive do you think children are? Do you have to do everything perfect? Um, I think that's, that's a major reason that pe- some people, you know, the whole idea that like, you could say one wrong word to your child and screw them up forever is really high pressure. And I myself, I, if I believe that would be very unlikely to have kids. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that uh, I have sympathy to the, I, to the idea that you have some kind of a right to um, a biological mother or a father um, or to know this person. I kind of, I, I get where that perspective is coming from. Um, I haven't really thought through too deeply why I feel sympathetic to that idea, but I think I do. And I think it, it, that sympathy increased after I became a mother myself. Um, but, but at the same time, I I don't think you can do much to screw up children. I don't think I you know, I don't think how they are raised really matters very much. I'm very very influenced by Judith Rich Harris in in, in that regard. Um, I think that to the extent that it matters is that it does matter if a child is happy. Um, it does matter what their present 
you know, feels like to them. And I think that there are ways you can structure um, their their upbringing and their family in a way to like sort of maximize for happiness. So that's, I guess that's what I'm maximizing for. Not so much, are they gene- rocket scientists, you know, um, geniuses at the end of the day. I haven't read the the nurture assumption. I've just read, yeah, uh, Kaplan and yeah, making your kids happy in the moment and also making sure your kids are good. Um, good roommates is what, what Brian Kaplan talks about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I was hanging out with these new agey people who are friends with my stepmom and mm-hmm. um, I had a camera on my daughter. I sleep trained her very, very early. In fact, I know a couple who probably won't have a second child because they wouldn't sleep train the first. <laughs> when did you sleep train? Yeah. Who are you talking to here? You don't, you don't know I, who I you're talking know. to. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, 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 yeah, you- I might as well tell, tell you guys, I don't think she'd be offended because she, she said specifically she refused to Elizabeth Nolan Brown is actually having a second, mm. but is still very sleep deprived because her first won't sleep. And then I have a friend who's a bioethicist. Her name is Francesca. Um, she won't sleep train her first. I think that they were set on having one anyway, but they still sleep in bed with their first. That's I, what Sarah do does. That. I do that. Yep. Why do you, why I, do you I think wake she up was with late a for this car on my, on my face? That's how I wake up in the morning. Um, and it's tragic. But I have sleep train. I tried, and then it just didn't work. And then it, whatever, whatever. There There's is a no long try. Story. There is only do. But um, oh anyway, my God. So, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, there's, oh. a, there's a thing called an extinction burst. <laughs> yeah, which is um, where an organism, including a baby, uh, it, it, talking about it in conscious terms is a little bit fraught. But I will. They try to do the behavior that they have done to get attention as much as, as humanly possible to see where like the parameters of the reinforcement schedule is. Right. So like, let's say you train a rat to press a lever and then they get a piece of food and then it's every 10 presses. If you stop giving them food, they could press the lever literally a thousand times before they decide that they're going to give up pressing the lever and toddlers mm-hmm. are much more tenacious than, than rats in this regard. Mm-hmm. And so when people say it doesn't work, um, it's, you give up, point yeah. which, the child said, you know, the child makes convinces you in some way that you're doing irreparable damage to them by not giving them what they want. And they're the good child they're is sometimes stronger than the parents and has yeah. a will that, you know, we don't have. And so we cave and then the habit gets worse and worse and worse. But we had go- a good sleeper for like seven months okay. um, until he started crawling out. Of- it started getting out of his crib and then it was all over. Then it was just now it's a battle of the wills and you know, he wins. So my brother's, I, um, my brother said something very clever. My brother's got a couple kids and he said, uh, you know, let's say your child wants something like, you know, peanut M&Ms or to take, you know, to wear princess costume to school or whatever. Their desire is like the only thing on their mind. You have like a whole other, you know, bunch of things that you're thinking about, <laughs> but that desire that they have, they're single-minded about it. And so even if they're less smart or less savvy or whatever than you, yeah, their, their motivation is, Anyway, so I, I was hanging out with my stepmom and, and this lady and um, we were watching my baby on the camera and she was just kind of blinking into the dark for 45 minutes before she fell asleep. She had a very stimulating day. She met a lot of dogs and new people and stuff like that. I think she was about 11 months old. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then she went to sleep and they were at the same time commending me that she fell asleep. And then this lady told me that both her kids have serious, I don't know, mental problems. And she thinks it's because of sleep training them. And so on the one hand, they were like, your baby sleeps so well. And I told them how I did it. And then she's like, oh, that's terrible. I sleep trained my kid because it was the 70s or whatever. And that's what you did. And I think that it it screwed them up for life. 
Yeah. Mm. I don't Wait, I don't pe- know. yeah, I don't believe that. People sleep sleep trained more in the 70s. I what what was the 70s uh Oh, I, I, so there's more behaviorism kind of stuff. I should really unpack what sleep training is. So there's a variety of ways that you can raise a kid. They all end up very similar. There's no effects like if you look at like data, there's no effects of of shared environment. If you sleep train one kid and don't another, but sleep training is a variety of techniques that you use for your child to sleep on their own without you. And, right. um, you know, usually in a dark room alone. So there is a technique where you check on them every few minutes and then there's what's called cry it out. Where and that's the one that actually alone. works. And was really that well. the 70s one? I, I mean, I, I understand now the concept of now. sleep training, but I didn't know there were, there were like sort of, um, this there it goes in and out of fashion what what was everybody doing in the 70s is this, this why the gen xers are so was, resilient it was brazilian okay so she um you know i think brazilian actually had a quite behaviorist and also very freudian like period but you know whoever was her pediatrician i was i was in brazil until i was three months old i was also born in brazil my mother's doctor told her to do he she gave me tomato juice for a whole weekend and made me incredibly sick when i was three months old like <laughs> There was a lot of really dumb pediatric stuff going on in Brazil. Maybe still there is. I don't know. Um, so there was this, this, this period and now attachment parenting is more in vogue. And maybe Sarah, I don't know if you adhere to that at all. Mm-mm. I'm, 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 I'm all over the place. I don't, because I don't think it matters all that much. I move around depending on what, what seems to suit our schedule. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I did this tweet a while back about how, um, t- Toddlers are evolutionarily designed to cock block their parents because they want to prevent another sibling from being born as long as possible. So there's this uh, professor I had as an undergrad called Chris Badcock, literally called Chris Badcock, (laughs) called psychodarwinism. And one of his most compelling ideas, I thought, was that Oedipus complex is actually like this proto-jealousy you exhibit towards your mother and this proto-jealousy can prevent her from conceiving a sibling until you've had more time to nurse. And, you know, you know, you don't want no siblings to be conceived if you're a child because th- there's inclusive fitness. They share half your genes. It's good if you have siblings, but you are, have a hundred percent of your genes. And ideally what you want, you know, from a genetic perspective is for your parents to wait as long as possible and give you their undivided attention and, and certainly milk Mm-hmm. for as long as possible mm-hmm. um, until you have a sibling. Mm-hmm. And so you do see toddlers show a lot of jealousy towards uh, their parents, especially with strange people, um, but also even, you know, between each other. And this usually, my, my toddler's too young for this, but usually comes on around like two and a half, three, which is in hunter-gatherers is like the weaning period. And my friend was tweeting about how she went on holiday with her ex-husband. They have a toddler together. They went on holiday together and they hugged in the middle of the street to see how the toddler would react. And she had a complete meltdown and, <laughs> them and was very upset that they were hugging. And, um, and everybody thought this was cute and funny, except for like this one attachment parenting lady who came in and was like, you did something on purpose to distress your child. And my friend was like, Cutting her grapes in half makes her unhappy. Like, what, do you, what do you want me to do? But anyway, I don't know if Sarah, your your toddler, is upset when you and your husband show affection to each other. Yeah, he 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 is he's getting over it. He's much better about it now. Um, he uh 
actually at the moment is more attached to my husband than to me, which is interesting. There was like a switch in a couple, like a couple of months ago. And at first it was kind of traumatic for me to be suddenly like, it was like, you go, you go. It's, it's going to be me and dad now. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. Now I'm kind of like, this is amazing. <laughs> like I get a lot more time to myself. He just wants to be with dad all the time and dad do this and dad help me. And so I, you know, I, I, I feel like all these parenting, um, philosophies and methodologies to me, they just seem like to overly complicate something that doesn't seem all that complicated to me, you know? Um, and I wonder if that's a very reductive, take or I'm just extremely lazy. Um, but I, I, I am influenced by Judith Rich Harris. I am influenced. Uh, so the nurture assumption, as far as I can tell, it hasn't really been debunked. Like it, it hasn't really been uh, or effectively countered. But what, but basically this is a big, it's a big fat book. And it, and her conclusion is that, um, it really doesn't matter, um, how the child is right. Um, unless, unless we're talking at the extremes, like if it's really truly abuse, then yes, um, there's an, a, dev- a developmental effect with children and their happiness and all this stuff. But outside of that, peer group matters a lot. Um, and genetics really. So, um, I'm really influenced by this. I'm really influenced by Emily Oster and her findings. And, um, and, and so that, that has helped me relax. I think more than I would have otherwise. I'm not in any part of any mommy groups either. I think that's really good mentally. I really, yeah, I really learned a lot about how neurotic uh, women are being part of, of mommy groups. Like most recently I was looking at the the group of women who were all delivering in the next month. And uh, one woman was very upset that her house air conditioning doesn't get her house below 78 degrees Fahrenheit and that her baby was going to be too hot and there were a lot of very like sympathetic people chiming in. And I wanted to say, you know, your baby's been in you where it's much warmer than that for some time. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't poke at those kinds of things anymore. You know, people want to, there's no, there's no point. People want to worry like, if they feel like worrying, uh, they, they can go ahead and worry. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and then you, you talk to people who have multiple, multiple kids. Like you talk about people who have five or six kids and, um, these conversations just seem so boring and old to them. And, you know, they just they just do things however they feel like doing them and however they work in the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, like a, a child rearing philosophy seems like the the where people who have like one to three kids are really talking yeah. about stuff. Yeah. 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 Exactly. No, I, I had a, um uh, initially like when I was uh, just just had popped out my baby, I was. Um, I had all these apps, you know, those apps where you're like, you track how they poop and like what the pee looks like. It's ridiculous. Megan, it's insane, but you're like tracking how they sleep and when they sleep and the apps tell you, oh, it's now it's time for another nap or, you know, how their poop is doing, whatever. So we had, we had all this detailed, we were like tracking everything. Um, and then I remember I showed it to some of my friends who have, um, they're like older parents and they have like a six year old or something. And they, they started laughing. Like when they, they were like, Oh, I remember that we had the apps and we were like, and, um, and then made me feel really foolish in the moment. Like, Oh, this, it doesn't matter. I should just, we should just stop. <laughs> we should just stop doing this. It's ridiculous. But now I have a chart about his, you know, poop color. Oh so my that God! Can be Are you serious? At his, you know, do you use, um, do you use Trello with him? The I don't. I know, tool? N- not yet, not yet. Um, uh, yeah, Diana, Megan is very. Um, 
Megan is very flustered by this my, is the need, word. my so, need to infuse technology within our um, workflow. Sarah and I are extremely compatible, except in, for this one area that is going to be the downfall of this. It's going to be the divorce. Project. It's going to be no, what is. we're going to we're both both going to. It is. And so so we are twenty years different. We have a twenty year age difference, and so Sarah likes to use management tools like these things with boards and lists and. Like, I, 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 knows, I'm I, like sure. why don't you just put, okay, so Diana's pre- exactly in the middle of us. What's that? Yeah. I, I like to use that kind of stuff. Too. Oh, I do. Yeah. Why don't just, how, Sarah doesn't use email. She won't, uh, Oh, that's she weird. can't. She, okay, yeah. no, I do use it. Megan uses it for everything. Meg, that's like Megan's I do. Google Drive. It that's is. Her, that's her task. It's list. how I. That's it's how her. I back up stuff. I write. I email it to myself. What's oh, wrong yeah, with my that? My takes all of his, uh, all of like the grocery lists and stuff like that are in Word, which is like, no. See, yeah, they're that's better, what I there's do. There's so many, there's options. Your husband is closer like, to my age. That's, that's whack. But it's so simple. There's a difference. So like, I'm older. I'm, I'm actually right between you guys in terms yeah. of age. I was lucky enough to have a period of my childhood, you know, before smartphones and before the internet where I learned to focus without those things. Mm-hmm. I think that you might need project management tools as a way to manage your attention if you also like are a digital native or whatever, because you, I don't, I mean, I don't know how addicted to the internet you are, Megan, but you might not need that because you actually learn to focus before the internet. Oh, I like this. This is oh, not yeah, because I'm is- incompetent. It's because Sarah can't focus. <laughs> okay. Here's to me, it's, it's less of a focus thing. It's more of a, um, productivity thing i just feel like i don't want to spend time searching for anything i don't want to you know i i want things to be in their place it's almost as if it's like um you know like the container store and what you like that that pleasure of the container store you go in there and everything and there's like little boxes i love it i love that place um i don't go to the container store ever because i it's too it's too amazing it's too stimulating in there <laughs> most um, women so- feel that way about walking into the anthropology store you know it's like that the anthropology store is like a you know a, 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 a it's like an orgasm it's like a it's like a retail orgasm for or women. paper but, source but have you ever been you to feel paper that way source? about like- oh paper source i like paper yeah source paper too. Source. that's very girly <laughs> that's a very girly thing yeah, i feel yeah. like but the container store yeah i i don't know anyway um Okay. Wait, I, w- I have a question for you, Diana. Did H- hunter gatherer society people, those folks, how many kids did they have? Did they not have that many because they had to space them out so yeah. many years? The, the number that women in hunter gatherer society have is between zero and six. If you look at like how many living children they end up with, it's like usually three or four. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so did they have them over like so they were spaced out they were spaced three out three or four years. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Okay. Because um in many of these societies, children can start to forage for their own food a little bit at age five. And then that's really great. Um I can't remember which group this is, uh, but they, they you know, the this the distended bellies that children get when they're malnourished. They, there's a, a group, they call that the disease of the displaced child, that that's how children look when you have another child too soon afterwards. And mm. breastfeeding is a very good contraception. Um, this is one reason why, I don't know if you've ever seen toddlers for nurse on demand, but they're deeply, deeply annoying. They're like just always on their mom's boobs and like on one and on the other. And it's because you need nipple stimulation to prevent 
ovulation. So their very life depends on molesting their mothers constantly, basically. And so, um, yeah, it is good. But like for some women, lactate, it's called lactational amenorrhea or there's, there's lactational infertility and it prevents you from ovulating for some, some period of time. So there is birth spacing, but if you use pacifiers or if you space out your nursing sessions or whatever, it doesn't work, um, perfectly. And then as children nurse less and less, their mothers become more fertile. And then that's when you have that jealousy where they don't want you cuddling with anybody else and where children get pretty attached to their moms or their dads. Um, and I don't know how effective it is, but, um, it seems like a, uh, it seems like a, a weird thing to do to your parents if you weren't trying to prevent the conception of a sibling. Yeah, I mean, we don't sleep in the same bed anymore, so that's yeah. It's, it's been it's been extremely effective. That's what I say. But <laughs> there's a lady I follow who uh, on YouTube who's got eight or nine children. She lives in a farmhouse. Okay, you know, you could watch her like prep and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And um, you can't tell from her face, her hands, or anything like that. She's like on her eighth pregnancy. Wait, prep for the apocalypse? What do you mean? No, she's sorry. So. She's prepping, she's prepping, meal prepping, uh, for when she has a baby. Cause like there's like a week she can't cook, you know, after a new baby, right? Just mm-hmm. a week. So she's like making freezer meals with like little instructions on them. Cause I guess her husband can't cook about like what to do with the instant pot for the eight kids that all need to eat or whatever. And they live on this farmhouse. And yeah, literally it's just a bump and that's it. Like there's no other part of her body. That's Why? Changed. Do you know? I just Is think there- that your body gets used to it. Okay. Yeah. You just stop retaining fluid everywhere. I don't know why. I don't even know anyone who's ever talked about it. I tried to look it up. Okay. Hmm. But yeah, second time around is like way easier. Yeah. Okay, great. I'm worried about this podcast. I'm worried about how (laughs) grotesque I'm going to look by the end of um, my Mm. next pregnancy. Okay. All right. So we have- Yeah. Megan is very, Megan is actually like kind of a contraceptive. She's doing this toddler behavior. It's true. um, For, for our podcast. She's very (laughs) nervous about me getting pregnant again. The worst um, thing I know, Sarah was like having this big crisis a a few weeks ago and she's like, Oh no, no, I'm so, you don't even believe what's going on. And, and it turned out there was like, uh, what did you have like termites or something? And I was like, I was like, Oh, thank God. Cause I thought you were going to say you were pregnant. Um, hmm. Uh, all right. So we had a, uh, interesting Zoom hangout with our listeners, uh, last week, a couple weeks ago. Uh, so we, our, our founding members get to have hangouts with us periodically. And th- the subject came up about like female sex drives. And how did this go? We were talking about like, I mean, it seems a very obvious point, but it, we got pretty, pretty. We were deep talking into about long term, like, yeah, l- long term relationships. Um, and then it got in the, on the subject of female sex drive because a lot of the women started, they started sharing their experiences of just not wanting to have sex anymore. And there was nothing wrong with the, their relationship other than the fact that they didn't want to have sex anymore. Um, and so the, the discussion was fairly interesting. It was all female group too, which mm-hmm. is really weird for us because this is um um uh, an anti woman podcast. Almost really. entirely male I mean, audience we're, for we're, this show. Not 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 really. No, no not really. Not really. Um, do, um yeah. Yeah. But the idea of having sex to maintain your marriage. There was a lot of talk about just kind of like uh going along with it. Uh just kind of holding your nose and getting through it in order to keep your partner satisfied. And 
I don't know what our question is exactly. Yeah, well, but, but what are your thoughts on this? These people? So feels like <laughs> There's a book called Untrue by a woman called Wednesday Martin, um, which I haven't read uh, in its entirety. I've read bits and pieces of it, which is about um, how women have just as much of a desire for casual sex as men do, which is uh, ironically also untrue. Um, <laughs> and there are people who say that women become sexually bored of long-term partners faster than men, which I also don't think is true. I think that what happens is that women just have a lower sex drive. And so that habituation or boredom with their partner um, takes their sex drive down a notch. You know, whereas a man might go from wanting to have sex with somebody every day to wanting to have sex with somebody twice a week, a woman might want to go from twice a week to never. And so that's a much bigger jump necessarily. Um, and then also, you know, like if you talk about like, childbirth and lactation and stuff like that, those things also necessarily um, reduce a woman's sex drive. Um, but yeah, the uh, Cindy Meston, who's this sex researcher I used to work with at the University of Texas at Austin, she said that, um, you know, it was, it was around the time that they were testing out this drug called flibanserin, which was supposed to be a, a female sex drive enhancing drug mm. um, that had a ridiculously, I think it, will, it increased the number of sexual encounters women had by like 0.7 per month. You had to take the pill every day and you couldn't have any alcohol. Um, so it was a real, I, I don't think it ever went anywhere. This was a long time ago, but she said many women think that they have a sexual dysfunction and then, they have sex with somebody new and they're fine. Yeah. yeah. And I've seen this happen uh, before as well. So it, it is a problem that people get um, habituated to their partner and they don't, I mean, this is one of the main problems with, with monogamy generally. And so if you look at sort of the trads, they have some ways of managing this. I know some trad, like I know a trad couple that experimented with, um, they just had to have sex every day for a week. And that, actually did improve their sex life because it kind of reduced the barrier to entry. If you haven't had sex in like three months with your husband or wife or whatever, it gets a little awkward to initiate or it can get very awkward to initiate if you've been turned down a lot. You know, just from a behaviorist perspective, the initiating behavior is now been punished so many times that it's like kind of gone to extinction. You just don't want to do it anymore. And so certainly I think stuff like that can can work. Um, there's also more exotic ways of 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 doing it, but uh, just speaking personally, I'm very lucky that I just don't, I'm not somebody who gets really habituated to people. Um, there are people I've slept with for for decades, and like I still like them, and I want to see, see them. Um, and there are women who uh, there's the demisexual, which you know, Kat Rosenfeld has talked about a lot, but there's also sexual, which I think is a typical masculine sexuality where uh, somebody wants to have sex all the time for like two or three months and then they don't want to have sex that much anymore at all. And that's really like mm. a short-term mating, usually quite masculine strategy. But you also see women who become tired of having sex with somebody after a few months or a few years. Um, Wait, fray sexual? F-R-A-Y sexual. And what's the... Don't flag. What's that? It has... It does? Yeah. Um... Okay, but wait, can we let's go back to the demisexual thing? Because yeah, Kat Rosenfield has talked about this. And I remember the first time uh, I heard that term come up. It was, uh, I think it was like 2017 or so. This was a college undergrad 
and she was like, she was very into identity stuff. Also on the autism spectrum, I think. Fascinating uh, young woman, actually. And she just said, oh, I'm a demisexual. That's just, you should know this about me. I think she might have you know, been in the queer category as well. And I was were like, what is that? Megan? What's that? <laughs> yeah. Like, were you on, was she da- trying to date you? Was she trying no, to no, no. This was, a, this was like a group. People were, this was like a discussion group. This was the, um, I, I'll look, I'll just tell you. I was teaching, I was at, um, I had a, a guest professorship at the University of Iowa. So I was there for the semester and I was researching my book. And so I was going to meetings of the feminist union. Um, which was mostly undergrads, and there were several men in, in the feminist union, um, including a couple non-binary ones. And it was actually the first time I'd ever had to say my pronouns. It was the first time I encountered the thing, we're going to go around and introduce ourselves and say our, our pronouns, along with our introductions. So anyway, so this woman, uh, I don't know, she's probably 20 or something. And she said, Oh, I'm demisexual. And she said, you know, I'm really, uh, I was really upset, because when I came out to my mom, as demisexual. My mom said, well, honey, so basically demisexual means that you are only attracted to somebody if you feel an emotional attachment to them. Is that correct? Okay. And the mom said, well, honey, that, that's just a girl. You're, you're, you're just a girl. And, you know, this, she was like very, very affronted by this. So no, yeah. are we supposed to take this seriously? Is No, I think, I, I think it's, if, if, if it's true, that hookup culture is very common and that people feel some desire to fit in with hookup culture and that people are having sex that they are not enthusiastically into or sex that they regret and they don't believe in sex differences and they think sex differences are, you know, talking about sex differences are patriarchal or fascist or whatever. They hate evolutionary psychology. That's fine. Then demisexual steps in. And saves them from having to believe in and all of sex differences. Mm. They can put an identity on themselves. And that identity is, you know, of a similar time and place as hookup culture is. And so they can easily combat each other. And if calling yourself demisexual prevents you from having sex you are not crazy about having, then fine. I think it's silly too. But at the same time, I think it probably does something good, right? That, okay. So these identity categories have come up concurrent to um, hookup culture. I never thought of that. Yeah. And also concurrent to the rejection of the idea of evolved sex differences. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. If, you, yeah. if you're, you're like, I'm a dude, I'm just a dude and I want to have sex with somebody for a few months and then I get tired of it and I want to have sex with somebody new. That's called a fuck boy and people don't like that. Right. <laughs> Whereas if you're like, I'm this special thing, it's called fray sexual. That's different. Or if you say, I'm just a woman and I, I like to have an emotional connection with somebody before I have sex with them because of whatever obligate parental investment, large gametes and the asymmetry of the burdens of venereal disease, that sounds less good than I'm just demisexual, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I've, I've had, I posted about this on my Substack a little bit that I, you know, people were asking me to address non-binary identities. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty critical of the modern like gender movement or whatever, and uh, I focus a lot on just people who are explicitly trans, one way or the other. Um, and then I, I got some responses of why, what about non-binaries, and how does this fit into your, you know, into your analysis, and that it doesn't seem to be. And I, I, I think I don't cover it because to me, non-binary kind of feels like a cope. Like it, it, it does the same kind of work that you're that you're ascribing to demisexual, which is to say that 
Um, look, I don't, I, here's this, um, you feel like a man or you feel like a woman. And I just want to feel like an individual. I don't want any of these things, but I also don't want to reject this, um, this, uh, uh, entire framework because that would mean I would lose all my friends and everything. So I don't want to reject, I don't want it rejected explicitly. So I'm going to have this, I'm going to, I'm going to choose this other identity and that's going to make me feel comfortable to be myself, whatever that means. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just think in 10 years, this is all, it's not going to be a thing anymore, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah. You know, I, I also think that there's going to be enough detransitioners that people will also think that, tr- you know, trans is problematic in a way they don't know. Right now, with, you know, bills against trans healthcare and stuff, being trans is not just a identity statement. It's a, it's a political statement and being non-binary is also a, a political, uh, statement. Mm-hmm. And, uh, at some point it's, you know, I, I think most people who are non-binary, um, are either on their way to being trans. Like I, I've, I've seen some, uh, men who go through a non-binary phase before becoming full-blooded trans women. And it's because they're autogynophiles. There's like a, you know, a non-binary stop on the way to full-blown, um, trans womanness. Um, but there, I, one problem that I, I, I pointed this out on Twitter yesterday is that some people say like, oh, well, you're not really trans unless you like take hormones and have surgery. And I do think that that's, um, reasonable thing to say. But on the other hand, that's a kind of gatekeeping that might make people who just want to fit into a category do things to themselves that are like irreparable or, or unchangeable. And mm-hmm. so I just think calling people whatever they want, I mean, there's a lot of people who disagree with me, but I, I think it's fi- it's fine to indulge this to some extent um, until we pass through it. Oh, okay. that's interesting because a lot of people think that social transition actually doesn't uh, help people. They, they actually think it makes things worse. I mean, this is a relatively new idea, I think. I used to be one of those people like, okay, well, social transition, whatever, as long as it doesn't involve medicalization, just you know, get over yourself. But yeah. apparently now I- that's maybe not true. Yeah, so I, th- I think social transition probably makes it more likely that you're going to like take hormones and stuff yeah. later. Mm-hmm. But I also think that the gatekeeping that says social transition is not enough, you're not really trans, is yeah, is totally also, is also dangerous, right? I get it. So I heard your conversation with Michael Bailey recently oh, yeah. um, about AGP. So you know, this was uh, it was a really long conversation. It's fascinating. Um, and, uh, just, do you want to explain who Michael Bailey is just sure. qu- quickly? Michael Bailey is a infamous, controversial, mm-hmm. and very principled. I- I've actually t- asked him over drinks if he courts controversy three or four times. And he's like, no, of course not. I he's think so mild mannered. Is, is, very... is not, tr- <laughs> is not right at all. But anyway, he's a professor <laughs> at Northwestern University and he popularized, uh, a categorization uh, that was ri- originated with Ray Blanchard on types of people who are trans. And Mike Bailey is actually, you know, incredibly liberal about people's, um, sexuality. Um, in fact, well, I could go into it more. And, uh, yeah, so he does research. He did research on bisexuality, on, on male homosexuality. He wrote a book called The Man Who Would Be Queen, which was very much about, um, a granular and very personal depiction of some uh, trans women who were autogynophiles and some trans women who were uh, what's called homosexual transsexuals. 
And, uh, yeah, you know, Michael, Michael works on very edgy aspects of sexuality. Um, you know, and he also has, uh, worked on things recently. So it's called, um, erotic inversion. So somebody who's attracted to non-human animals will end up being like a furry, for example, or somebody who's attracted to amputees will themselves want to become an amputee. So autogynophilia is a form of this, um, erotic inversion where mm. you're attracted to women and then you want to become a woman. And that was the, a lot of the, our conversation was about that. And then also a recent paper that he wrote that got retracted, which was about rapid onset gender dysphoria, which was, uh, a bunch of parents who were worried that their kids who had previously evinced no sign of having any kind of gender incongruence decided that they were trans. And this is a different paper than Lisa Littman's paper. Yeah, this is a recent paper. This is um, Susanna Diaz and Mike Bailey. And Susanna Diaz is a pseudonym for a woman who herself has a child that is worried that she has ROGD. Okay. So one of the things that struck me about this conversation was he was talking about ROGD being really predominantly a phenomenon of girls um, and an AGP, autogonophilia being um almost predominantly the syndrome of natal males so like that you wouldn't typically see boys having ROGD now i thought that was uh interesting because i feel like i know of a number of boys that appear to be in the ROGD category uh as, but maybe so Maybe, and I'm not necessarily sure they're autogonophiles. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. But. What Michael, what Michael Bailey said was that, um, he's skeptical that boys can experience ROGD because it's such a social phenomenon and boys are like less embedded in their social groups than, than girls are. And he also said that it's, you know, it's easier to say, my friends are all trans. I'm trans now than to say, mom, I've been wearing your panties, you know? (laughs) So he thinks that it's just, um, you know, he, he talked about one anecdote, which was a boy who, his parents were afraid that he had ROGD. And I think the therapist talked to the dad and the dad also obviously unbeknownst to the son, because there's a genetic quality to this, um, was also an avid private secret crossdresser. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what might have just gone as far as cross-dressing previously now seems to uh, cross over into potentially ROGD. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not sure about any of this stuff. He he said all of this is in its infancy. It absolutely is in his infancy. Um, And the reason this paper got retracted, allegedly, well, I mean, they didn't get... um, a consent form from the participants. They agreed to participate just by doing the survey, but they didn't actually have it spelled out. And so uh, this is one problem with ethics review boards is that they said, uh, there's nothing you can do, just publish it. And then later on when, you know, activists came for this paper that they, they had a a reason to uh, retract it, which was that they were not given a specific um, uh, consent form and as somebody who's done psych research for a long time, uh, the consent forms are usually clicked through in 
less time than it would take to read them. I'll just yeah, and of course the trans activists are all too happy to get behind a study with the same methodology that happens to, to you know support. Yeah, uh, yeah. if there was something a bunch that of they were agree with, yeah. yeah, supportive of transition. But uh, so yeah, we talked about all that all that stuff. Yeah. But I mean, what do we think about, and I know this isn't your area per se, but just, you know, to stay on this for a minute, like, I feel like, and Sasha Ayad has talked about this and others, like, there are boys who they have, their peer group is a lot of girls, or they play with a lot of girls, or they, they want to have the approval of girls. I've also heard of cases where, you know, when they're older, older teenagers, like the girlfriend will actually encourage them to transition. I had a kid on my other podcast. He was an anonymous guest. He was in his early 20s at this point. And he he was a detransitioner, but he had transitioned largely because he had become very entangled. He had a girlfriend in a relationship and a, her, and a very involved with her family, and they were very progressive. And th- there was this kind of like collective project of the girlfriend and her family, like encouraging this transition. And it was all very tangled up in his in his heterosexual erotic feelings about this girl, but then also like wanting to mirror her and she wanting him, she wanting to control him almost like a little doll. It was, and I, I, this is not the first time I've heard about that kind of thing. Wow. I could imagine a boy that was very feminine um, being embedded in a feminine uh, peer group that has the same kind of dynamics um, that that a, a natal girl would be in. I think I I've seen it as well. Yeah, but I, yeah. I I guess it's not common enough to be something that's. But 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 that also depends on the extent to which the social group or you know the social context um, pushes something like this onto you. Because yes, boys are less susceptible to any kind of social influence. But if the social influence is extremely strong, I think you might just see. Um, like rising rates of, you know, uh, boys who otherwise, you know, 10, 10 years ago, 15 years ago might not be so influenced. Um, but I've seen it too. I've seen, uh, sort of more feminine, more feminine boys, um, or young men, uh, who decide to take on trans identities. And it really, fe- and I don't think they're autogonophiles either. It just really yeah. feels like they're just really, um, uh, uh they're really they're embedded in a very specific very strange little social network and there is a way in which you know you're a shy you know let's say white dude you know and you're not special in a lot of different ways um and then if you're in a very progressive hyper progressive social space you are actually the worst person in the world as well (laughs) you know you also have to like be quiet all the time and apologize all the time and and you know reconcile with your white male whatever whatever and i think they're in a way, this is kind. Of, there's this is kind of a backdoor, you know, exit to this um, white male privilege, um, mm. and then now you have an identity that allows you to have, you know, like a, a, a real sense of dignity within this group. You also have to think about, yeah, you, what what Megan was talking about is this guy fell in love with this woman, and he was doing what he needed to do to to have sexual access to her. Yeah, let's think of the evolutionary uh, yeah, so, aspect I mean, of I this. Could, I could definitely, um, I can't remember what the word is called in like the internet nomenclature. Uh, Catherine D would know this, but um, there's some word for a, a man who transitions just so that he can get laid. Um, you know, somebody, somebody who's an <laughs> incel. That's commitment. 
That's- somebody who's an incel and then they transition and they initially transition because they're getting access to like a subgroup of strange women. Um, but ultimately the transition causes them to have sex with men. They're a well. trans cell. Yeah. No, the, I, I, I know, I think I know this term. I read something about this, um, on like, on pirate wires. I think it was trans maxing or something like that, but it, it was like, yeah, there you go. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. And it's just these people who are just like unfuckable and they feel like this is what they need to do to be fuckable. And they start to care a little bit less, um, in terms of who is attracted to them. It's just that they, just want to be desirable so much um, that this is an easier way to go about it. One of yeah. the many, many, many controversial things that that Mike Bailey said in The Man Who Would Be Queen is that homosexual transsexuals, which, um, you know, tend to transition earlier, they're attracted to men, um, they think consciously about whether or not they'd make hot women before they transition. Mm-hmm. You know, are they mm-hmm. petite enough? Will they be able to pass? That kind of thing. You know, mm-hmm. would it be better for them in terms of how much sex they have? The, you know, the idea that people make these decisions in the absence of any kind of consideration of how attractive they'll be to others is obviously, you know, and with transmaxing, you can imagine the kind of phenotype, the kind of whatever male morphology. Let's say you're short, you're slight, you're skinny. You'd be a cute girl. And you're not, you're not actually, uh, being a very cute, uh, boy at the moment. I remember, um, one of my guilty pleasures is the reality television show, My 600 Pound Life, which is about people who, uh, have extreme obesity. And there are two trans, uh, people on that, um, program. And one of them, I think her name's like Delilah or Destiny or something. She, uh, was a homosexual man and she talks about how she's going to the club she's at her friend's house she puts on a corset and uh, some women's clothes and this 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 is just a really really fat man you know in gay culture is like really into fitness and youth and blah 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 and he goes to the club dressed up like his his, you know in his female friend's clothing and he gets 20 times as much attention as he would like just as just like a normal fat man. And then that's when he decides to transition and become a woman. All right. I want to talk to you about plastic surgery. So Sarah and I were recording a episode the other day and we stumbled upon this question of what is the, what is the evolutionary, uh, is, is plastic? Here's my question. Is plastic surgery an evolutionary adaptation? Because we were talking about whether women get breast implants, for example, only for men, only to please men, or if it's ever to please themselves. Do lesbians ever give breast implants? That's what we uh, came to. Well, I mean, lesbians have different, yeah, sexual preferences. Um, I knew this woman when I was in graduate school. Um, I was sort of her mentor, and she confided in me once that she could only have an orgasm if she thought about herself with really big breasts, like she, she, she was very upset that she had small breasts. And then I saw her later and she, she had breast implants. That's like my one experience with somebody I know who's like, was, you know, I think she would have breast implants on a desert Island. You know, That's exactly was- what we were saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We said, if you were, if we were the last person on earth, like what, how would we do? Like, would we have long hair? Like what would we do for our appearance if there was nobody else around? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a very one idea about why women are more prone to depression, especially in middle age compared to men, is that a woman's 
status and, and value, social value, is so contingent on their attractiveness. And there's very little that they can do about it as they get older. And, and plastic surgery has changed that. Calling it an adaptation, I think, is, is tricky um, because so much plastic surgery now seems to uh, actually change somebody's appearance in a way that's like not naturally relevant, like in a way that makes them look like more like an Instagram filter or whatever. Um, no, I, I really don't know. I, I don't know if, yeah, getting more male attention, um, you know, the, the, the name of Louise Perry's podcast, which is mother maiden or uh, maiden mother matriarch or whatever, he's talking about like the stages of woman and there, there's, you know, Simone Collins, who I also uh, interviewed that will come out at some point. She talks about how, we have this the, the the teenage aspiration we have, which is to be hot, sexually successful, have lots of flashy, lovely things. That becomes like a lifetime aspiration. Whereas, you know, for our ancestors necessarily, there was a period in which being hot and beautiful and having people desire you was really great. And then a period in which being um, a mother and taking really good care of your kids was the highest status that you could attain. And then, you know, ultimately, if you have surviving kids, ideally, you become a matriarch and you, people come to you and you're wise and you know things. And it doesn't matter that you're hot anymore. And now there's this, you know, extension of maidenhood, essentially, throughout the whole life cycle. And being hot is important throughout the whole life cycle. And it's not really designed for that. I mean, with the modern environment, it's easier with nutrition and exercise um, to maintain yourself. Certainly, I think women in their 50s probably look better than a lot of women who used to look, you know, in their 30s. If you think about like the medieval period or whatever, in terms <laughs> of like teeth and hair and things. But uh, calling it an adaptation, I think, is a mistake. But I think saying that it 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 has adaptive relevance, or you're trying to prolong um, the cachet that you get from being attractive, uh, because it is one of the main uh, ways that women have to status thing makes sense. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Would you get breast implants on the desert Island? Yeah. The breast implants are like, they're uncomfortable. Um, they're like, they're I, like I, something I to up, deal with. A friend of mine had got them uh, and I was helping her do research about them. And the, the, the statistics vary, you know, anywhere between 30 to 50% of women who get breast implants are unhappy with them or need revisions or whatever. You know, I know a couple other people who have them um, and they're like, well, you know, everybody can tell that I have breast implants if I take off my shirt. So they don't look natural, but they are still appealing, mm -hmm. you know, especially cause like, I think it's the most common form of plastic surgery. And then now I, I went down this long rabbit hole a couple months back of um, breast implant syndrome which is this idea that you have systemic inflammation, including depression and anxiety, because your body is actually uh, launching an immune response against your breast mm. implants, mm -hmm. um, which which I think is quite interesting. I, I don't know, you know, I think that the rate of suicide, I, I tweeted this the other day, among women who get breast implants is two to three times greater, but I think that's selection effects. I don't think that's, that's a correlation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it has to be, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, what about the butt implants? I feel like that's actually the most common surgery. It's certainly the it has fastest to be nose. growing. I feel like it has to be nose. Has been oh. it? Isn't it nose? Like it's not nose jobs or the easiest. It's not a nose and job. It's a they people have a deviated septum. 
And oh, they right, have to right. get it. That was always the thing. In I high remember school. that. Like, yeah, somebody, that somebody school. has to yeah. miss school for a few days because they have a deviated yeah. septum that they have yeah. to get fixed. Yeah. And then from yes. what I've heard from like watching, and I love reality TV plastic surgery, which is entirely what I'm deriving my responses from, <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, they don't do butt implants anymore. It's um, a lift for a while. Brazilian butt lift, which is where they they inject your fat in, which has got a one in three thousand mortality rate. It's the highest mortality rate of any surgery, like any elective surgery. Oh my God. Um, that is very common. I went to a strip club in, I want to say Queens. Um, and the stripper that I, uh, got a dance from like really knew my number. So she gave me a dance. My friend is paying. And then she's like, if you give me, if you buy another dance for me, I'll tell you everybody in this club who has, uh, had surgery on their butt. Oh my God. <laughs> done and done. Yeah. Did you, did you get it? Yes, please. So she sat in my lap and told me like, I would just skip names. the dance. Just tell gossip, me. Like she told me all the gossip of all the girls and all the girls who had butt implants or who had Brazilian butt lifts. This was, uh, it was really, really, really good fun. So yeah, I think I, I, I've certainly heard from like, there's, there's vice documentaries and stuff about this. The strippers make a lot more money if they get a Brazilian butt lift mm-hmm. or breast implants. I mean, I don't know. I I think that the breast implant thing is mixed. I don't know if everybody makes more money if they get breast implants, but certainly you want to look like like exaggerated, right? But what's the mm-hmm. evolutionary strategy behind having a big butt? Oh, it, it's it's actually not necessarily a big butt. It's it's waist to hip ratio. So waist to hip ratio is an indicator of fertility. There's this um, professor called Devendra Singh who worked on this, and he showed that um, women who got lipo on their butts or lipo on their middles and it got put on their hips that they were considered more attractive by outside raiders even if their uh, body mass index went up even if their their total weight went up mm-hmm. the other thing is um yeah so there's this other um researcher i think is steve gollin who has looked at um uh, fat deposits. So when women go through their first menses is contingent on how big their thighs are. Like, so apparently you can measure a woman's thighs. <laughs> I knew it. And, uh, and, and that'll like indicate what, and so like, I, you know, as childhood obesity increases, we've also seen like a lowering of the age of, of menarche. What he says, and this was like a few years ago that I went to his talk is that all of the fat that builds baby brains is stuff that's derived from your butt and your hips. And so like that fat is really important for building up the. Why? The I don't know. Wait, 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 go, go back here. What do you mean? Why? Yeah. He was saying that that specific, like there's a specific composition of fat that's stored in your butt and thighs uh-huh. that is drawn from when you are pregnant. Oh, when mm. you are pre- you're, for your baby, not yeah, for okay. your baby. Got when, it. That is drawn from when you are pregnant. Yeah. Um, and that, that, the, that, those particular fat deposits are, are like reduced. And I don't know what you think, Sarah, but I mean, my, I don't know. My, my butt looks different, but it could be because I'm sitting all the time. Nobody ever says that woman's got a writer's butt, you know, writer's butt. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> a great, great asset. But anyway, um, so that was what he said. I'm not endorsing it in any way, but it could be that people are advertising, they're advertising fertility. So like the more estrogen you have, the more fem- female typical your fat deposits get. As mm-hmm. women go through menopause, 
and their estrogen lowers, they tend to put more fat on their middles and they have less fat on their breasts and their butt and their, and their thighs. Mm -hmm. So when you are in your highest Mm -hmm. estrogen period and you put on weight, you tend to put it on, um, in, in these areas. And you also see this with like, you know, with like trans men, right? They say you start taking testosterone and then your weight gets put on in very different places. Mm-hmm. So when you have lipo and you have a Brazilian butt lift, um, you are faking the signs of having high estrogen and high fertility. Okay. Hmm. So That's you're saying that everybody should do that. that. This is a good, so everybody should go out. And it's do not this. great from a, you know, this is where human society is going. We're just going to be naturally less attractive, naturally, our hormone levels are naturally going to be. I, I, I just think that, um, strange. you know, if you, if you want to be an Instagram model or whatever, or if you want to, uh, I, I mean, those are the kinds of, th- what, what I, I, there's a woman who is trying to have the biggest butt in the world. Her name is, I think, Natasha Crown, and she has like a really enormous butt. She gains a lot of weight. Anyway, she went to go see the plastic surgeons on Botched, and they said that what happens when you get um, a Brazilian butt lift and they take all the fat off of your middle is that later on when you gain weight, you have, your fat has to get stored someplace. So your fat will start getting stored on the top of your arms or even worse, in on your visceral fat, which is more dangerous than if it's stored on the outside. It's more dangerous to have fat on the inside for whatever reason. And so um, you only have so many fat cells. And if you move them and like, I don't know what percentage of them die. A lot of them die. Like a lot of them don't survive the move to your butt. That's why a Brazilian butt lift looks great for a few years and then looks worse after time because I think the fat atrophies on the butt because that's, mm. that's not where it belongs. Mm. 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 Yeah, I've heard some okay. more things for like moving fat to I think there was a time where people were considering moving fat to breasts, but then it was it was the same sort of situation where it wouldn't last. And then sometimes it would like some fat cells would last on like one boob and not the other boob and then you have like this wonky situation um not didn't seem to be worth it. Yeah, the, the porn star Lana Rhodes instead of getting breast implants, she had fat transferred on her boobs and her butt. Mm-hmm. And it looked amazing. I, I mean, I think she quit porn, so I don't know what she looks like now. Um, several years later. But anyway, mm-hmm. I hope you guys are prepared to issue corrections for my entirely reality television-based opinions. <laughs> oh, but these are so much more fun. Yeah, right? no, no, no. We then, don't, we're not going to issue corrections if they're going to make this less uh, enticing. But do you think that uh, like 20 or, okay, like 100 years from now, uh, are people even going to be bothering with this? Or are we going to be so like in the metaverse or whatever that we can, everything will be a filter. I feel like the, I feel like it's weird that an Instagram model, not weird, but like it's ironic. If you're, if you are an Instagram model, you're already all about the filter. So it's kind of irrelevant what you look like in real life. Right. I mean, mean, even though people use filters, I guess you can only go so far. There's like degrees of fake, right? There's like the filter fake. And then there's like plastic surgery fake and I no Instagram model wants somebody to say like, oh, I met her in person and her butt is tiny. Oh yeah. No, you should have to never go out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I mean, all that stuff is quite foreign to me. Uh, it seems to me that like the kind of relationship you would get in with somebody whose number one criteria was your butt size might not <laughs> be great. 
<laughs> in the long run, yeah, in the sure. Long run. Well, so are you like a transhumanist or like where are you? I know you're yeah. you're for artificial wombs, um, or not. Right. You're not opposed to them. That's right. Uh, so before we yeah, let you go, pro, let's get into that for a little. I'm very pro reproductive technology. I wrote something uh, recently on on polygenic screening and combating some of the rebuttals to that or criticisms to that. Yeah, I'm in favor of artificial wombs. Um, I had a, a pretty intense debate with Louise Perry, who's against surrogacy. In fact, I didn't even realize until very recently how much the natural rights people are pretty impervious to evidence. Like you bring evidence to bear and they're like, well, that doesn't matter to me because the child deserves X, Y, Z. And or uh, this is X, Y, Z is the way things are supposed to be. And even if you show me that it doesn't matter at all, you know, in terms of evidence, it doesn't combat my common sense or my, uh, you know, my ideas about what's natural. So I didn't, so for, for a long time, I worked on disgust sensitivity. And I think a lot of this really does come down to disgust sensitivity. And libertarians, and I would probably imagine transhumanists as well, are very disgust insensitive. Um, and so to me, the, the wisdom of repugnance is not a very good argument against these things. For, for a lot of people, they'll say, that squicks me out. Like, uh, something like cultured meat, which has now been FDA approved for chicken in the United States. I know people who say that, you know, they'd prefer to eat a dead chicken and all the suffering and feces that entails than, um, a cultured meat chicken, even though, there, you know, just because the novelty is isn't in itself um, disgusting. So, yeah, I'm absolutely a transhumanist. Are there limits to that? Um, I mean, even when it comes to people becoming trans and doing experimental surgeries on themselves and things like that, you know, phalloplasties and uh, vaginoplasties and things like that, I just have a real sense that people should be allowed to do what they want with their bodies. They should have you know, bodily autonomy and, and I'm, I'm a real, uh, sort of corporal, corporeal libertarian in that way. And I do understand the arguments that we have to protect people from themselves. I, um, I'm just not very sensitive to those arguments. And, and I've certainly talked with people who say, you know, that's all well and good. Um, but you know, you have to have a society where people who are less cognitively adept, let's say, if you think about an IQ distribution, I mean, oftentimes it comes down to an IQ distribution. If you think about an IQ distribution, you have to think about policies that are going to be best for everybody, you know, in the, you know, 80% of the population, not just people who are over like 120. And this, I think, is the most compelling arguments for outlawing things like, um, experimental surgeries, experimental medication, um, surrogacy, pornography, things like that, is that people who can't think through their decisions carefully are going to make mistakes with their lives that uh, could be prevented otherwise. Um, maybe it's maybe it's a lack of disgust sensitivity and a lack of empathy. I am sensitive to those arguments. I just myself don't want to live in a society where – I'm encumbered and other people are encumbered by the sensibilities about what's best for everybody. Mm. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think adults should be able to do whatever they want. The weird thing is like, just 
the arbitrariness of 18. I mean, I know this is how you have to sort of structure. There has to be an age of consent. There just has to be. But it's just so weird that something can be completely uh, not allowed when you're 17 and then the next day you turn 18 and then there's just nothing we can do. It's yeah, and that's another thing that people, you know, don't really consider the harms of. Like now it's become like even if somebody, let's say some some 50-year-old man messages who's gay or straight messages somebody who's 17 on Instagram in a completely banal way, it's considered really monstrous. And I just don't think that people are thinking about the the harms. If somebody who is 17 has sex with somebody who's 50, it's probably not going to scar them for life. It's probably going to be fine, especially if there was some kind of negotiation. Depends on their disgust. uh, It depends on their disgust. This has become like a real hot button issue. And, um, you know, there's this British scandal with this guy called Hugh Edwards having conversations with, with guys on Instagram or, or asking them for pictures or whatever. And I think all of this, um, unfortunately people are, are, as I've discovered very recently, not as sensitive to evidence about harm. Like you say, okay, well, if you actually look at people who are 17 on average, um, there's this, uh, the only paper in history to ever be censured by an act of Congress is this paper called the Bruce, it's, it's Bruce, the Bruce Ryan controversy. You can look it up on, on Wikipedia. And Bruce Ryan said that if you look at, uh, children after puberty, that is, children between the ages of um, 13 and 18. And you say, okay, and Kinsey also collected data on this stuff. And you say, okay, how um, upset and distraught were you by a sexual encounter that you had with somebody, either your same age. So like, let's say you're 14 and you have sex with somebody who's 14 or you have sex with somebody who's 16 or you have sex with somebody who's 17 or you have sex with somebody who's older. Like let's say above 18, the age of your partner is not predictive of how distressing or bad you think that sexual encounter was. The best predictor of how distressing or bad you thought that encounter was, was whether you're female. That's the number one <laughs> predictor. Women are just much more likely to say that a sexual encounter mm-hmm. like that it was bad overall. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the double standard in terms of um, criticizing and punishing people who are older, who have sex with younger women makes sense up to a point. Although, young women who have sex with even people their age are more distressed and unhappy about their sexual experience than men are. It's really not contingent on, on the age difference. Um, And so these are, these are all things that I think, you know, when it comes to transhumanism or polygenic screening or artificial wombs or trans healthcare or whatever, uh, I would love for people to, to sort of abandon their visceral emotional responses and take evidence on board um, but, but nobody wants to do that. Yeah. 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 Well, well I remember what you, um, I mean, just from my personal experience of knowing gay men and, and, uh, their relationships, like the age gap, the general comfort with really, really wide age gaps is astonishing. You know, it's just something that it, in a, in a heterosexual setting, a more traditional heterosexual setting, um, would be like, oh, th- those two, like there's a generation difference, but it seems like it's far more common in a, in a gay context. I also have heard, um, more gay men say that they had an encounter when they were, you know, like 
minors with an older person and that they don't regret it and that it wasn't bad and they don't have that's what got milo yiannopoulos finally right i mean i've heard this throughout the years i feel like there's a pattern that my brain is um now thinking about having it, it having heard what you just said diana one one spicy take about this which i'm not sure is true but it fits in with this theme of this podcast (laughs) <laughs> spicy that, takes that are not true yeah is that middle-aged <laughs> women uh, uh have started to call older men who sleep with younger women even like let's say she's 20 and he's 50 calling him a pedophile because what they're trying to do is change the societal acceptance of age gap relationships so they have greater access to men their own age and yeah. men their age and also, you know, to, to less, I mean, young men have less social power, but this is one way in which their interests are aligned. Like mm-hmm. the interests of a 50 year old woman and a 20 year old man are aligned in criticizing a relationship between a 50 year old man and a 20 year old woman because the 20 year old guy would like to date her himself and the 50 year old woman would like to date the older man. <laughs> and so this idea that, uh, age gap relationships are really problematic, cause a huge amount of harm. And that people who engage in them should be punished in every area of life is actually the insidious creeping of single middle-aged woman uh, interests parading as morality. Mm. Mm. Hey, hey, look, don't knock my hobbies. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Don't kink shame Megan. (laughs) Yeah, really. Um, all right. Well, we should probably let you go um, since you're about to to give birth. But Sarah, did you have any more? questions any final uh, questions for uh, no, diana? no but i i do want to hear diana what are you doing um what what do you want to promote what do you want our people oh, right. to to pay um pay yeah, what are you doing coming yeah, what are you do, other than like have having so many babies um um so yeah i work uh i'm a presenter and sometimes contributor for aporia magazine a-p-o-r-i-a um, you can read. Not aphoria. Oh my god, I've been saying it. I, I mean, I, I, I do nothing but mispronounce things. But I thought I got that one right because it's what did PH. you think it was? Aporia. It's P. Isn't it a PH? No, it's aporia. Fu- oh, it is. What? Okay. Oh, aphoria. All right. It's aphoria. Right. It's aphoria. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> and I, 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 what I mean to do is like transfer all my old blogs to my new Substack. I have a Substack. It's called Sentient. You can see me on Sentientist. I have a policy against being on Twitter when I have a newborn. It encumbers my milk production, but I will be on there occasionally. <laughs> and um, I, I've got an extension on my book. Uh, I should have never mentioned I was writing a book in the first place, but now I have. It's called How to Train Your Boyfriend. And um, now the the book has been extended, but it's like about – you know, 60, 70% drafted, and it'll be out in the next uh, year or two. Great. Wow. Yeah, looking forward to that one. That could I be- know. For the next seven months, I'm probably going to be doing very little other than taking care of a baby, so. Okay. okay. Well, well, when it comes out, you come back and you tell us how to train everybody. I would love to. And yeah. How- <laughs> okay. How to train your podcast partner. Oh, That's my gosh. That's what we need All right. here. Okay. Ugh. All right. Um, all right. Diana, thank you so much. We're so honored that you made this your last stop. So um, thank you. Um, yeah. And good luck. Good luck. Congratulations. Good luck. And, yeah. and uh, enjoy. And, and send right. us a picture of your uh, pregnant belly for our, our, our paying subscribers. Oh, yeah. Who, for our soup. For our you got to pay premium. for that. You got to. Yeah. I'll, I'll just put it out here and then you guys can. This is like your wow. only fans for. Uh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. 
Wait, Definite... you're out of you're out of okay. the frame, actually. Oh my god. Oh my, oh my god. Oh, my oh god. whoa. Stop. That's too... <laughs> oh my god. It's beautiful. You look amazing. I love it. Like, so I I got no stretch marks or anything. That's one nice thing. Gorgeous. But my belly it's... button did come out and A little it freaks bit. my husband out. And I chase him around with this this extended navel. <laughs> around the house. My, my toddler's favorite thing is pushing it in and out. She loves it. Well, thank wow. you for that. That was right. Megan. I loved it. I loved it. I loved this it. And like, so it's okay. Okay. It's fine. Two and again. we're going to make, we're going to make money off of it. So yeah, that's definitely. even better. Megan will like okay. that part. And yeah, thank you, always. Diana. Okay. Um, Thanks, Diana. Fine. Bye.